in part four, I want to tee it up because I want to talk to you about wisdom and kind of tie the whole series together. A great book that I read during lockdown, or before lockdown, I should say, was this book, 12 Rules for Life by Dr. Jordan Peterson. And when I was reading the book, there's this interesting story he tells about Billy Bixby and his dragon. Here it goes, and I quote, There's a story for children. There's uh, no such thing as a dragon by Jack Kent that I really like. This is Peterson uh, speaking. It's a very simple tale, at least on the surface. I once read its few pages to a group of retired University of Toronto alumni and explained its symbolic meaning. It's about a small boy, Billy Bixby, who spies a dragon sitting on his bed one morning. It's about the size of a house cat and friendly. He tells his mother about it, but she tells him there's no such thing as a dragon. So it starts to grow and it eats all of Billy's pancakes. Soon it fills the whole house. Mom tries to vacuum, but she has to go in and out of the house through the windows because the dragon is everywhere. It takes her forever. Then the dragon runs off with the house. Billy's dad comes home and there's just an empty space where he used to live. The mailman tells him where the house went. He chases after it, climbs up the dragon's head and neck, now sprawling out into the street, and rejoins his wife and son. Mom still insists the dragon does not exist. So you're starting to figure out where this is going. But Billy, who's pretty much had it by now, insists there is a dragon, Mom. Instantly, it starts to shrink. Soon, it's cat-sized again. Everyone agrees that dragons of that size, number one, exist, and number two, are much preferable to their gigantic counterparts. Mom, eyes reluctantly open by, by this point, asks somewhat plaintively, sadly, apologetically, why it had to, had to get so big, why did it have to go, go this far? Billy quietly suggests maybe it wanted to be noticed. Maybe. That's the moral of many. Many stories. Chaos emerges in a household bit by bit. Mutual unhappiness and resentment pile up. Everything untidy is swept under the rug where the dragon feasts on the crumbs. But no one says anything. As the, share, as the shared society and negotiated order of the household reveals itself as inadequate or disintegrates in the face of the unexpected and threatening, everybody whistles in the dark instead. Communication would require admission of terrible emotions, resentment, terror, loneliness, despair, jealousy, frustration, hatred, and perhaps even boredom. Moment by moment, it's easier to keep the peace, but in the background, in Billy Bixby's house, and in all that are like it, dragons grow. One day it bursts forth in a form that no one can ignore. It lifts the very household from its foundations. That it's an affair or a decades-long custody dispute or ruinous economic and psychological, of ruinous economic and psychological proportions. Then it's the concentrated version of acrimony, which means like pain or resentment or bitterness, that could have been spread out tolerably issue by issue over the years of the pseudo paradise of the marriage. Every one of 300 
thousand unrevealed issues which have been lied about, avoided, rationalized away, hidden like an army of skeletons in some great horrific closet, burst forth like Noah's flood, drowning everything. But there's no ark because no one built one, even though everyone felt like the storm was coming. What an interesting story, right? And in case you've missed the point of the story, the point of the story is this, is that things happen in life to us and through us. And, you know, there's things that happen that are painful. There's things that happen that we're not proud of. There's difficult, sticky things. There's challenges uh, in work, challenges in our marriage, challenges in our home. But if we choose to ignore these things, if we choose to ignore the voice of wisdom, if we choose to isolate ourselves and cut ourselves off from community and from support and from godly voices in our life, the thing that is trying to, that right now may seem like small or might seem insignificant, can grow and eventually cost us a marriage, a friendship, a basis our mental health, or even our walk with God. But wisdom tells us that God gives us the help and support that we need so that we don't have to uh, tolerate even little dragons. We can live a dragon-free life. And by the way, in case you're really confused right now, I am not advocating the literal existence of dragons. Although if you do see one, let me know. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line of Peterson's getting at is the same thing our series is getting at. You and I, we, have all participated in all of our bad decisions. The one thing we can say about each other with absolute sense of fact, fully knowing each other, is that when it comes to all of my bad decisions, I made all of them. When it comes to all of your bad decisions, guess what? You made all of your bad decisions. And a single bad decision is more than just a one-off decision. A single bad decision is always a first step to becoming your own worst enemy. Why? As you've been saying all throughout this series, because every habit began with a first, come on, began with a first. Every pattern began with a first. And every journey begins with a first. And I can tell you after 20 years of pastoring and supporting people and just being there when people's lives fall apart, oftentimes people get to this place which has become a destination. Maybe it's broken dreams, a broken relationship. It can be many things. And every time I sit with them in that broken place, just listening to them share their story and share their pain, it's almost as if part of the shock that they're going through is a shock of, how did I get here? How did I end up here? Like it was never my dream to be where I am, but how did I get here? And oftentimes as we kind of study the, or trace the steps, our own steps into our own mess, our steps of others, it's like what began as a simple first time. So what's the harm? There's no danger. What's the issue? Texting him back. What's the problem if no one knows? Sure, it's only one time. I'm only taking a certain amount of milligrams. Like, what's the issue? Well, it becomes a habit, which becomes a pattern, which eventually becomes a destination. And what we've been talking about in this series, practically speaking, is that we can develop better habits, what we're calling preemptive habits. These are habits that we can, we can uh, nurture, that we can foster, that we can uh, care for, that we can craft or create or grow in our lives that protect us ahead of time from counter habits. Way back in week one, or week two, sorry, we gave you the first preemptive habit. The first preemptive habit was this. Number one, pay attention to... The tension, meaning when you find yourself in a scenario where you just feel like, man, something's not right, something's off, your conscience is speaking, like something in you is lit up, like don't ignore that tension. 
Because oftentimes good decisions and wise decisions don't require us to ignore our conscience and push past perhaps even the voice of the Holy Spirit. So pay attention to attention. Last week in part three, Pastor Sam was here uh, and uh, he gave us print habit number two, which was pay attention to your narratives, to the story you tell yourself. Because sometimes we are the best people. I've said way, way back in the beginning, we are, we, are the, we are our own best salesperson. So pay attention to our narratives. Today in part four, I'm, I want to give you preemptive habit number three, which is pay attention to the voices of wisdom. Pay attention to the voices of wisdom. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of a thing called the genetic fallacy? Well, a fallacy, of course, is something that seems to make sense but isn't really logical. For example, uh, my dog has four legs and my cat has four legs, therefore my cat is a dog. Right? It's like, well, no, that, yeah, it, okay, it makes sense, but that's not logical. Or for example, oh, my good friend Matthew, he lives in a very big apartment complex, therefore his apartment must be massive. Right? Makes sense. Here's, here's a more painful one. Ireland is the number one rugby team in the world, and we're going to go to the World Cup. Therefore, we should win, right? Not! I'm, I'm almost there. So a fallacy is when something seems to make sense because it's in the same space of logic, but actually, as you draw it out, it doesn't make sense. A genetic fallacy, then, is when you discount reliable information because of the source versus the merits. Literally speaking, when we, when we ignore the, the, the truth or quality or the or the reliability of information because we look to the source and we see the source as an issue rather than looking at the merits of the advice. It's, for example, when you're in school and your teacher is really trying to encourage you to put your head down and work hard and you go, that, that teacher doesn't care about me. She doesn't really want me. She just wants to have a good score of how many students pass their leaving search. She's not really interested in me. So I'm going to discount the reliability of what she's saying because I know that her motive's not pure. It's when you're young again and your parents are giving you advice about decisions or relationships or perhaps the best one, friends. Because our parents live through things that they don't want us to live through as well. And when they're trying to advise us that bad company corrupts good character, which of course comes straight from the Bible, that is true every time. Good character doesn't change bad company, but ga- bad company always corrupts good character. Who you're surrounding yourself with is who you are becoming, which is why if you want to shape a great future for yourself, look at the quality and the lifestyle of those who surround you, because they may be great crack, but then again, many people who will descend into hell will be laughing all the way. The point is, when, when, we hear the, when we hear this advice, maybe it's like right now you're here, one of our locations, you're not a Christian, you're not a Christ follower, and I'm a pastor, and you're going, oh, sure, what does that guy know? Like, a pastor, someone who represents God, like, I am going to switch off right now. But the point is this, although there are certain cases where we have to be wise and pay attention to the source, because sometimes, depending on the advice, like, for example, taking marriage advice and someone who wasn't, you know, didn't have a good marriage, well, okay, there's, there's always something to be learned, but we have to exercise wisdom. But in general, when good advice is good advice, it's good advice, no matter where it comes from. We can become suspicious of information because of the source, but advice should not be judged, or advice should be judged, forgive me, by its merits and not only by its source. When we do this, this is how we not this is how we don't become our own worst enemy. Because here's the bottom line, here's what's true of you and true of me. Most people, most people who became their own worst enemy were 
warned. And if it wasn't through the advice of a friend, it was through the inner advice of our conscience or perhaps the voice of the Holy Spirit. At some point, someone said, this isn't a good idea. Or someone, someone said, I don't think that that's wise. Come on, our worst decisions, the ones that sometimes when we're alone, we think about, the things that we that grip us, the things that make us feel powerful emotions, the things that we regret, the things that we're ashamed even to tell people. Our worst decisions are always preceded by a series of unwise decisions. There's a famous uh, movie, Napoleon Dynamite, and in that movie there's a character, Uncle Rico. Here's Uncle Rico. And uh, what a crazy movie. But in this scene in the diner, Uncle Rico's talking about his past. And he believed that if things had been different for him, if he had made some better choices, then perhaps his talent, which he doesn't really have, would have been spotted and he could have become a great uh, football player. As he sits there in this diner, he says, oh, I just wish I could turn back time. Wouldn't it be great if we could turn back time and undo some of those decisions? And of course, if you've seen the movie, you know what happens. He tries to buy a time machine on eBay, and it does not go well for him. The point is, the past is the past. We can't change the past. And part of the gospel message is that Jesus came to forgive us and heal us and redeem us from our mistakes of yesterday and to set us up as ordinary people to an extraordinary purpose for tomorrow. There is hope for, there is hope for tomorrow because there's help in now because of what Jesus has done for us in the past. And what we can do is, even though we can't turn back time, we can change some things in our lives now that, that will help us go from being our own worst enemy to our own best ally. Now, to help us understand this, we're going to turn to God's Word. There's a very famous story, which we're going to turn to in a second in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, some of you perhaps are familiar with biblical history. Uh, some of you, like me, didn't grow up with that, so it's brand new. But the first king of Israel was a guy called Saul. And some of you know this. Uh, you know, basically, in the book of Judges, the people of God were like, hey, all these other nations have a king. Like, we want a king. Like, a king is cool. Like, having a king is a really cool thing, so give us a king. And God's like, well, I'm your king. And they're like, well, yeah, that's cool, but we want a visible, physical person to be our king. And God's like, well, you know, I'm going to warn you up front. When you put a person, a man, a human in charge, it's going to come with its own fair share of pain. Why? Because people are not perfect. King or not. Call of God or not. God, believe it or not. People are imperfect. So if you want this king, I'll give it to you. But it will come with its challenge. People say, well, we don't want to listen to your advice, God. We want a king. And so God gave him Saul. Didn't take very long before Saul dropped the ball. And God raised up another king. This guy is very famous. That king was King David. This is David who fought Goliath and, and so on and so forth, the shepherd boy. And again, King David's life was not perfect, but he was the greatest king in Israel's history. And when David died, the kingdom passed to his son, son Solomon. And of course, Solomon is, is known as being one of the wisest, or if not the most wisest ruler or king or person that's ever lived. And when it came to the end of Solomon's life, he was supposed to hand the kingdom over to his son, Rehoboam. The problem was, even though Saul started off his, his uh, kingly career as someone that loved God, feared God, revered God, and trusted God, by the end of his life, because of all the wealth and all the stuff that he had, Saul's heart drifted far from God to the point where he actually died quasi a, a pagan. He, he literally... A, a, 
worshipped other gods, built altars. He just drifted so far. What began as a first step became literally a destination. And so rather than this smooth transition or succession from him to his son, there were some challenges. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 11, this is kind of the context of the story, verse 28 to 40, we're told that one of Solomon's uh, wisest, most able, most gifted natural leaders was a guy called Jeroboam. So you have Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son and heir to the throne, and you have one of Solomon's best leaders, a guy called Jeroboam. And we're told in verse uh, 28 that he was uh, a man of standing, he was very good at his work, and that Solomon put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. And Joseph is an analogy for Israel. So basically, it's almost like Jeroboam was a cabinet leader. Like he was given a whole section of government. Some historians believe that he had up to 150,000 workers under his purview. He was, he was elevated to the highest level of government and he excelled. Until one day in verse 29, something really strange happened. We're told this prophet, whose name was Ahijah, saw Jeroboam, and when he saw him, took off his jacket, ripped it up into 12 parts, gave 10 to Jeroboam and said, God is going to divide the kingdom of Solomon because his heart has drifted far from God, and he's going to give you 10 of the 12 tribes that make up the nation that was Israel. Of course, when Solomon hears about this, he isn't like overjoyed. He's an old man come to the end of his life, and if you know anything about historical successions, they're bloody. And so he immediately tries to kill Jeroboam and try to do everything he can in his power to make sure that his son's succession happens uninterrupted. So Jeroboam hears about his attack and flees to Egypt where he spends the rest of time until the day Solomon dies. And here's where we get to our core text, which is 1 Kings chapter 12, next chapter, verses 1 to 7. Again, all of today's notes on the Bible app if you want to track along. But we're told that Rehoboam went to Shechem. And Shechem was the ancient capital of Israel. It's kind of like the Hill of Tara in Ireland. It's one of these places that even though it wasn't practically, functionally, a place that still existed uh, in terms of its governance and dominance in society, it was a symbolic place that was important to the story of Israel. And we're told that he, w- he went there in order to be coronated king. So in other words, he was going up for his his, uh, his, what do you call it, ceremony, his crowning, coronation ceremony, and he was going to Shechem. When Jeroboam, in verse 2, we're told, heard about this, he returned from Egypt. Obviously, you know, Solomon had just, had just died at the end of chapter 11, so Rehoboam's getting ready for his service. When Jeroboam hears that he's saved, Solomon's gone, he returns to Israel. But he didn't just return of his own miracles. In verse 3, we're told that uh, this is the people of Israel sent to Jeroboam, and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, which is very interesting. What happens is, is the people want Jeroboam to come back because they want him to represent them. So obviously he had the trust and he had the hearts of the people, which is always the purest and most best way to lead people, not out of fear of our position or because they have to or they'll be fired, because there's a genuine acknowledgement of someone's heart to serve and of their character and of their uh, ability, their competence in leading other people. So the people want to invite Jeroboam, please come with us to Shechem, to Rehoboam, and help us state our case. And so in verse 4, here's the case. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke that he put on us, and we will 
serve you. So here's the issue. Solomon was a very ambitious king. And when you look at it, historically speaking, the king of Israel was at his absolute height geographically, uh, politically, economically, militarily, was at his absolute height when Solomon was king. But of course, all that expansion, all that, you know, having borders means you'd have people to enforce those borders. People are always attacking you. There's threats. Everyone's trying to knock the big guy off the block, which meant huge amounts of resource went into keeping this kingdom going. But not only that, but Solomon, at the end of his life, developed an incredible capital E ego and was popping up monuments and statues absolutely everywhere to the point where people, hundreds of thousands of people, were being set off constantly to quarries, to mine stone, to carry stone back. I mean, you think about today, like, how we have, like, lorries and boats and and all these different, you know, technological devices to move things. But back in the day, if you wanted a a uh, 20-meter-long, you know, stone foundation for a statue, someone had to go and physically cut that thing out of the ground, then carry the thing out of the ground, and then transport that thing perhaps hundreds of miles to a destination just so someone could feel good about themselves by erecting a, a statue of themselves. So the guy's like, listen, we've done this for years. And we're not even saying we won't do it anymore. We're just saying if you would take your foot off the pedal just a little bit, if you would just loosen your grip just a little bit, if you would hear that our hearts are not rebellious, we're not against your, your program for government, we're not anti the, the, the betterment and expansion of our kingdom, we just want you to see that we have been pushed very hard. Will you lighten the load somewhat for us? Now, here's the first of two things that Rehoboam did that were very wise before the one catastrophic thing he did, which was very unwise. In verse 5, we're told, Rehoboam said to them, go away for three days and then come back to me. So that people away. I mean, this is just absolute gold. Like when you're faced with a really difficult decision or one that has long-standing consequence, I always try to tell people, if the consequence of the question you're asking outlives the time that you've been asked, you should think about it. You should take time and more than just think because you know that you thinking by yourself, of yourself, and for yourself is not always wise. You should pray about it and invite God's wisdom. And you should surround yourself, as we're going to see in this message, with people who are, who are godly and have their own wisdom. And you should listen. But the fact that he took time out, well done. That's a, first, that's a, that's a gold star, man. Well done. You didn't just react with your own opinion or what was happening. You took time to process. And the second wise thing Rehoboam did in verse 6, he said, Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon, during his lifetime. Again, I mean, Bulabus, Anawahmakar, like, well done, like, this is good. Like, you recognize that you're a young king, and even though you grew up in the palace, you didn't run the palace, and even though you watched your father, you don't know what it means to carry the weight of government and leadership. But there's people around you who clearly were loyal because when your father died, they didn't try to set up another kingdom or try back people like Jeroboam. They're with you. And, and even though they might have all the right answers, they have the benefit of experience. And obviously they know your father's uh, you know, value system and culture because they've been in this government for years. So well done to Rehoboam for asking the elders their advice. He says literally, how would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they said in verse 7, they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people, and serve them, and give them a favorable answer, 
they will always be your servants. This is mind-blowing. What the elders are saying, which was 100% true, is that, Rehoboam, understand that even though you have the position of king, and even though people, technically speaking, as your subjects, uh, have to, they're, they're obligated to serve you and obey you and follow you, um, that's actually the weakest form of influence. If, if, if the people that are under, if you're an employer, if you own a company, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're an older sibling, a connect group leader, if you're still in ministry, if people under you only follow you because they have to, they won't follow you for very long and they won't follow you very far. But when you adopt the position or posture of a servant, and you see that really the purpose of what God has given you, uh, where its influence is a parent or an employer or a pastor, is actually an opportunity to serve people and to, and, to, and to lay down our lives in a sense for the betterment of others. This is what it means to be a good leader. And when you lead like this, and when you live like this, even though sometimes you don't have the position or title, you will have the hearts of the people. And when it comes to, to mobilizing people, whether it's trying to advise your kids or trying to lead a workforce or lead an office or department, when it comes to, to, to aligning people in unity and mobilizing them for success, the number one thing that you need over anything that's not a job, position, or a, or a title, it's their hearts. In other words, what they're saying is, is if you put their interests ahead of yours, then they will put your interests ahead of theirs. So, so far, man, two out of two, this guy seems to be a very sharp person until verse 8. Because unfortunately, whatever it was about that advice, maybe it was because they were old dudes, maybe because, oh, you're my dad's group, maybe it's because, oh, you've had your chance. Whatever it was, Rehoboam experienced the genetic fallacy. He ignored the merits of the advice based on the source of the advice. He rejected the advice the elders gave him or told him, verse 8. It was what he needed to hear. But it's not what he wanted to hear. Which, how many times we fall in this trap? That we, 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 we know, we can, we can almost intuit, like what has been said to me is good for me, but I don't want to hear it. It's what he needed to hear, not what he wanted to hear. It was the only way to get to where he wanted to be. And this is how exactly, this is precisely how we end up where we don't want to be. We end up being our own worst enemy. We, went, we end up in what began as a first step, what began as a once-off, what began as a what harm will do becomes a destination. Why? When we start ignoring the wise voices around us. And here's the question right now. Whose advice are you currently ignoring? Whose advice are you currently ignoring? Maybe it's the, the fleeting of a, of a spouse to say, hey man, break out all these unhealthy habits and get healthy. I was on the phone last night with a good friend of mine. He uh, was here visiting us four months ago. He was here in our church, hanging out, visiting us. Great guy. Uh, blessed our church uh, and so on. And last night I was texting him and he goes, oh, by the way, I had a heart attack four weeks ago, just so you know. How many know that when your friend texts you and says, I have a heart attack, you're going, what kind of idiot friend is this? How am I only finding this out by a text message like a month later? So immediately I phone him, we're chatting, he's like, oh, it's no big deal. Had a pain in my shoulders, went to the doctor, and turns out my heart was going to blow up. Like my widowmaker artery was like 90% clogged. I'm like, what the freak, dude? This is not good. It's like, yeah, well, you know, for years, people have been nagging me to take care of my health, and I ignored them. 
And I'm like, man, thank God for his grace that you're still above ground and talking. But the point is, oftentimes what seems like nagging or pushing or when it comes, when it's the right information regardless of the source, it's good for us. And when we actively and proactively and consistently ignore that advice, maybe it's a parent saying, hey, get into church. Maybe it's a friend encourage you, read the Bible, pray. Maybe it's a leader saying, hey, trust God in tithing, join a group. Join a team, go on a mission, whatever it is. When, when we know it's good advice and choose to ignore it, this is how we end up in destinations with places doing things that we never dreamed or wanted to do. Ray Bomer told him, verse 8, rejected the advice the elders gave him and instead consulted the young men who had grown up with him and who were serving him. So what did Ray Bomer do? He, does, he did the same thing we all do. We go to those friends who we know will tell us exactly what we want to hear. They won't disagree with us because when you're in that unhealthy, toxic, self-serving kind of friendship, when someone says, hey, I spoke to the elders about the situation and they said ABC, what do you think? It's almost immediately understood in that toxic culture that you should totally disagree with them because you already know by how the question's asked what the person who's supposed to be your friend is asking. They're asking you to, to disagree with them and to support them. The problem is, is when you're in those toxic, self-serving friendships, guess what happens when you go down? You go down solo. Those advisors won't be there with you. They won't be in the dirt with you. They won't be in the trench with you. On your darkest, most difficult, most painful day, when your whole life falls apart, you will find yourself alone. Where are those so-called friends? Well, they're out advising other friends how they should live their lives. Listen, we need to build the kind of friendships in our lives that we have people, thick or thin, good or bad, they're with us to the bitter end. And we want to know what it is to live life in the trenches and having people who stand to gain nothing from our lives. They have nothing personally to gain. They just love us enough to tell us the truth. And I feel sorry genuinely for people who don't have those kind of relationships. He asked them, what is your advice in verse 9? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put upon us? The problem with always doing what you want to do is you eventually arrive at precisely where you don't want to be. Uh, the problem with, with, with Ray Bomer is, is that he's not asking a genuine question. He's asking his friends to agree with him, which under, highlights this motive that when we live our lives constantly doing only what's good for us, because here's the bottom line, when it comes to being your own worst enemy, you're never just your own worst enemy. Why? Because your life is connected to the lives of others, whether it be children, spouse, friends, co-workers, colleagues, connect group. Like our life is connected in all sorts of ways. So when we choose to press the self-destruct button on our lives, that has consequences has echo effects, that has tremors, that sends a tsunami wave into the lives of those who love us and support us. So when we live our lives in a way that we only do what's good for us, what we want, how we want, we want, the problem is, is that leads to a place in those relationships that we never wanted to be. Nobody is married and says their wedding vows want to be divorced. Nobody who gets a job promotion or loves their company wants to be fired. Nobody who spends years and years and years investing in good friends wants to lose those friends because of their own stubborn and self-centeredness. But, but none of us do this intentionally. It always begins as an innocent first step. In this case, Ray Bowen, verse 10, we're told that the young men who had grown up with him said, these people said to your father, put a heavy yoke on us, but now make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger 
is thicker than my father's waist. Let's pray. I mean, okay, I mean, that's a very interesting statement. Like, it's like, imagine being in a fight, someone goes, I'm going to knock you out. Let me tell you, my little finger is bigger than my father's forehead. It's like, what the heck is he talking about? What what has a little finger got to do with ruling a kingdom? And of course, it's a colloquialism. It's a metaphor for a time. And what was happening here is that back then, because like for most human history, the vast majority of people lived on the verge of starvation and death. When someone had the ability to consume enough food to be fat, i.e. big, that was equated with health and strength and with wealth. So if you were an over, overweight person, some of you thinking, man, I was born in the wrong era. I'm with you. If you were, if you were born a thousand years ago and you were the way you are now, people were like, wow. Like, I mean, he's, it's like oh, ancient Instagram. Look at that fat dude. What a healthy, strong, wealthy person. He must be someone really important. And, and what Ray Bohm is, what the advice is saying is like, listen, you think my father was fat? I mean, wait till you see, my little finger, the smallest part of my body in a sense, is bigger than my, fa- my father's waist. And is isn't just speaking of wealth, health, and strength. It's also speaking of appetite. Because one of the things that was associated with luxury was that if for most of history, if someone wanted something, whether it was a house or a meal or, or just, just changing their geographic location, most people couldn't change anything in their lives. Like what you were born into is what you would die in. That was it. Like if you were born a carpenter's son, you died a carpenter. There was no going to college or traveling. or There's just, just, just no opportunity. You're living literally hand-to-mouth day by day. So the, the ability to have more than you need spoke of appetite. And of course, Solomon's appetite for his kingder, kingdom and his self-grandeur was insatiable. And Ray Bowman so said, hey, you think my father had an appetite? You think my father was ambitious? You think my father pushed hard? You think my father was a heavy? Wait until you see what I'm going to do. Verse 11. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Again, very interesting cultural reference. Back then, if you, were, if you were a servant, you were a free person but working, and you need to be motivated, they whip you with just leather. But if you were a criminal, if you were a slave, if you were someone that had no individual identity or dignity, they would, they would attach like broken bone and teeth to the end of the whip, kind of like if you ever watched The Passion of Christ, and they would whip you with that. They would tear the flesh off your, off your body. And the point was, you're, not, you're, 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 you're devalued to the point of being property. And what the king is saying is, I'm not going to recognize you as a kingdom of, of individual autonomous beings who serve me. I'm going to treat you like slaves. I'm going to treat you like prisoners. I'm going to treat you like criminals. I'm going to treat you like the worst of the worst. So three days later, because this all happens in the three-day interim, so Ray Bohm's in two out, three, two out of three things well. The problem is two rights can't go wrong, right? So even though he's done two things well, the one thing he did unwell was about to blow up his entire life and the entire kingdom of Israel for all of history. So we're told three days later, Jeroboam, and all the people returned to Rehoboam. And the king answered the people harshly, rejected, rejecting the advice given by the elders. And again, like I said, we're only ever one unwise decision away from total catastrophe. In verse 14, he followed the advice of 
the young man and said, My father laid in you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, but I will scourge you with scorpions. Verse 16, one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. When all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. The reason why this is in quotations is because this was actually a poem that was sung by the opposition during, during David's reign. This was something they, they kept in memory. Like if, if David turns out not to be a good king, we, ha- we have a document ready. And the document started off by saying, hey, what, 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 what commitment, what obligation do we have to you, David? And David's father was Jesse, of course. And basically, to your tents, Israel, look after your own house. It's basically like giving the middle fingers. Like, you know, F you, keep your kingdom, we're out of here. And in that moment, something truly tragic happened in verse 17. We're told, so the Israelites went to their home, but as for the Israelites who lived in Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. Let's skip down to verse 19. So Israel, we're told, has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And again, when the author of Kings wrote this, it was to that day. But even to this day, as in today, still to this day, there's been a division in the house of David because of Rehoboam's inability to listen to the voice of wisdom around him. One unwise decision, because of one unwise decision, the kingdom was lost, which meant it was weak, which meant it was vulnerable, which meant it was invadable. And of course, if you follow through and read the rest of his, biblical history, that's exactly what happened. Basically, Israel's history, even up until recent days, is that someone is always attacking them. And the point is this. It stands as a metaphor for our lives, your life, your relationships. So something's always going to come against you. That's the nature of being alive. Do you know who doesn't have any problems? Dead people. They're dead. If you have problems, be encouraged. It means you're still alive. And if you're still alive, there's hope. And if there's hope, there's help. But the question we have to ask ourselves as we close off this message and this series is, whose advice are you currently ignoring? Because here's the truth. Somebody can see what you can't see. There's people around you who don't want anything from you, but want something for you, and their interest in you is truly motivated by their love and care for you, and they see things that that they they can't remain unsaid. They must say something because they care for you. And even though we choose to ignore these voices, we must always remember private decisions always have public consequences. You may think, I reserve the right to think and do as I please, but eventually that, that, that decision leads to a direction which becomes a destination. And then when your life is falling apart for a reason, financially, emotionally, physically, uh, spiritually, and other people are now pulled in because you're literally drowning, what began as a private decision leads to public consequences. Wise voices set you up for wise choices. Wise voices set you up for wise, which, which is precisely why we need connect groups. Like we know what they are and what they do and how they work, but why do we need to be in a group? Because we need to surround ourselves with wise voices. It's why we encourage you to scan the QR code, have a look, ask if you have friends, whatever location, like figure out what's going on and get yourself in a group 
Because more often than not, most of our friendship circles that we're in, whether it be work or sport, mo- not always, but most of the time, are self-serving relationships in that place. For example, if you left your place of work, would those people still be your friends? If you cross over the county, your parish line, and join another team, would those teammates still be your friends? Like how many people are only friends with you because it serves their self-interest because it's easier to have a friend in the canteen at lunchtime to ignore you as a stranger. We need real friends who live life with us, who will be there with us thick and thin, who even though they're imperfect, ordinary people, because they love and care for us, they see things we can't see, they see our blind spots, and they will speak in love to us. I want to encourage you, at the best way to not be your own worst enemy is surround yourself with wise voices. Surround yourself not only with physical people, but also with God's word. That's why every single week, every message we preach is built off of God's word. Because God speaks, we speak to him through prayer. That's what we're doing in our prayer and fasting. But he speaks to us through his word. And he speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. And if we choose to pay attention to the tension, to pay attention to that voice, pay attention to our narratives, God can speak to us. And God just, just, learn, just developing the humility to discern and act on God's word is something that can change our lives forever. In conclusion then, as we close off not only the message, but indeed the whole series, every habit begins with a first. Come on, every habit begins with a first. Every pattern begins with a first. Every journey begins with a first. So the first commitment I gave me one was, I will pause until I pinpoint the cause. I will explore rather than ignore the tension. Last week, part Three, second commitment. I will demolish every narrative that conflicts with the value system introduced by Jesus. Number three, I will not automatically discount advice based on the source. Remember, pay attention to the tension. Remember, pay attention to narratives. And lastly, as we pray, pay attention to wisdom. And if for for every reason you find yourself today conflicted or confused or uncertain, hey, make sure to speak to one of our pastors, our Next Steps team, We are here for you. You're not here for us. We're here for you. We want to serve you, help you, support you. And if you find yourself as a person disconnected and friendless and no sense of family, we'd love for you to belong here. We're doing this for you. We're doing this for the country because we believe that God cares for people. And God is our best ally. And we want to be that for you too. So let me encourage you, get connected and surround yourself with the support system spiritual family that loves you and wants the best for you. Amen.